Hello and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. Today we'll be speaking to Shazia Ganai, CEO of NeuroInsight, a neuromarketing and neuroanalytics company that helps brands translate and understand consumers' subconscious behaviors. And also with us is Kate Johnson, Stylus's senior editor of Consumer Attitudes and Technology. Welcome to both of you. So we're going to be discussing the gap between perceived and actual consumer behavior, exploring the importance of storytelling for prompting action, and debating the benefits, challenges, and ethics around tapping into people's subconscious desires. Um, but first, Shazia, please tell us a little bit about the work your company does in making the subconscious conscious. Sure, hello. Um, so we are basically a research agency, and we specialize in measuring the subconscious mind, because about 90% of our decisions happen in our subconscious. And a lot of the traditional research methodologies that exist, they tap into the conscious, so we're reliant on human human beings to articulate what they think and feel, but not everyone can actually do that. So what we're doing is we're measuring what's going on in the brain. And we do that using um, a technology called Steady State Topography, which was created by an amazing neuroscience professor called Richard Silverstein, who's based in Australia. And we look specifically at specialised regions of the brain where we can understand what's being encoded into people's long-term memory, which is incredibly important because long-term memory correlates to future action and decision-making and behaviour change. So for brands, it's the most critical thing. But also, it's great to know what goes in your head, but so what? So we look at emotion as well. So we understand some of the, the emotional responses in our brains as well. Um, so how do you practically go about measuring this stuff? Well, so um, it's, it's actually quite a nice um, sort of comfortable method in that we just get people to come in in groups of eight. So normally you do a focus group, we get people to come in a room. And say, for example, we're testing how a TV ad performs. We believe that context is key. So normally you would get people to watch a TV ad and then answer questions. But actually, we don't go out, go home and then go, oh, do you know what, I fancy watching some TV ads. We actually just watch TV. So we get people to come in, about groups of eight, we sit them down, we fit them with the headsets and then we just say, we're just going to measure what's going on in your brain while you watch about half an hour of telly. So they just hang out and watch TV, we measure their brains and there's a couple of ad breaks and we throw in client ads and hey presto, you've got your, your insights. And so, what what is the what is it that you're doing when you're measuring? I mean, what, what kind of? I mean, is it like EEG kind of stuff? So it's it's similar. So it's called SST, steady state topography, and they wear a headset. So it's like a little cap, and it's got little sensors on it, and they have felts on them, and the felts are soaked in saline solution, so salt water, because that conducts the electricity that's kind of always whizzing around on our heads. And then they also wear a visor. So this is the difference between us and EEG. So with EEG, one of the challenges is the data is very noisy. Um, and so with what we use, where they wear this visor, they can see straight through it, but in the periphery of their vision, there's a flickering light. And that flickering light creates a signal in the brain. And we track the responses in different regions against that signal. I've made it sound incredibly simple. There's a bunch of very intelligent neuroscientists who've you know, developed this over time, working on, on various things in the past. Um, and it just works incredibly well for, for commercial purposes. You know, You can get larger groups of people you can scale it up which means that the research isn't just insightful it's also robust which as we know as an industry is really damn important yeah so let's talk a little bit about the insights that you're 
extracting from people's subconscious. <laughs> um, can you tell us a bit about the behavior that you're, that you're seeing or, or, or even the assumed behavior versus the actual behavior that's coming through? I mean, there's always going to be a bit of a difference, right? So we know that your conscious recall of something is a subset of your subconscious uh, mind. But also we know that human beings, when they have the opportunity to rationalize things, they will often say what people um, would expect them to say or say what they think society wants them to say. And that's not necessarily indicative of their actual behaviour. So um, I've seen a couple of examples of this which are quite funny. Um, we did a study a while back with Mindshare where we were looking at Alexa. So we've done a couple of things with Alexa. We did one initially where we looked at how the brain responds to using voice tech versus just text-based search. But then we also looked at um, Alexa with um, the same skills but in a male voice and a female voice. And we looked at the difference in how different brains respond, so the different genders respond. And interestingly, we also asked a um, an exit survey at the end, like a conscious, just a questionnaire. And we found that with the response of one part of the brain we measure, which we call approach and withdrawal, which is the measure of direction of emotion that you feel. So it's your brain going, do I want to lean towards this or back off? That one loosely translates to like, dislike, and sometimes appeal and things like that. In this case, we found that the male um, respondents actually found the male voice really appealing. That's what their subconscious told us. But when we asked them consciously, they just wouldn't admit to it. And, you know, it's one of those things where society kind of almost tells us how we should behave to a point. Um, but what we like and what we dislike in our subconscious, that's a decision that's made before we even have the chance to mm. to figure it out, you know? Do you do you have a chance to sort of judge people's um, moods or understand people's people's state of mind before they do these tests? Because I was reading I was actually reading yesterday some research about the fact that people generally tend to buy more when they're sad. So if you are shopping when you're sad, you you are likely to purchase more. So do you, do you do you assess people's states of minds before they start this? So we don't assess their state of mind because we're not looking at it's it's a tricky one. So with with particularly with things like um mood and things that are to do with chemicals in the brain. So we're measuring electrical, not chemical activity. Um, so that's the first thing. But also, we're, we're kind of looking at a nat rep sample of people while they're doing something quite neutral. So we've done some work where we've looked at... Um, it was published, we did it with Newsworks, where we looked at advertising content in the context of hard news versus soft news. So we were trying to understand if people are seeing stuff that's like really intense, quite negative, quite scary, what's the impact on what they see after? And what we found actually was even if they get in that state of mind where they're reading something a bit heavy, what's actually what we're actually looking at is how engaged are they in something that the impact is therefore of a similar level in terms of their engagement on what's coming next. Because right. the concern for so many brands is, you know, should we be placing our content in the same space where we're having all these horrible news stories, which is actually just the world today, right? It's a pretty dark place. And so what we found was when you think about mood in that context – Actually, it's about leveraging the levels of interaction or engagement or investment almost, as opposed to the mood itself. Right. Kate, I know your team has covered emerging tech that offers consumers intriguing access into their subconscious minds. Could you tell us a bit about that? 
Yes, sure. Um, we have been exploring actually this rising trend in um, the next cohort of thrill seekers who are seeking, um, well, basically they're getting a rush from accessing their subconscious or inner aspects of their psyche that beforehand they've not been able to. So it's almost a new frontier of self-discovery we're finding. Um, and entering that scene to help them do this are these kind of new forms of what we've dubbed mystic tech. Um, that's fast-tracking access to these new levels of consciousness for enhanced self-awareness, decision-making, and well-being. So um, one example in particular uh, regards lucid dreaming. So people are trying to tap into their subconscious minds while they're sleeping to, uh, I guess, wrangle with their dreams and um, manipulate them in some way and or process traumas through their subconscious minds. Um, so there's I-band uh, plus is a headband basically that lets wearers dream lucidly um, and supposedly overcome fears while they sleep. Um, and there's another one, Dormio, which is a sort of a glove-like concept. I don't know if you've seen this, Shazia. Mm. Um, but it enables the user to access their subconscious for longer by keeping them in this extended hypnagogic state, which is that stage between wakefulness and sleep. Um, and then their sensors in the device that sort of track the user's hypnagogic state by measuring their heart rate and muscle tone. And it can sense when the user's transitioning into the deepest stages of subconscious, uh, i.e. also when they're going deeper into sleep. Um, and then and sort of an app that accompanies it emits sounds using um, via the smartphone, triggering certain words that then um, supposedly enables that visual to enter the dream or um, sort of allows people to uh, be able to have more of an uh, input into what they're kind of dreaming about or change states, that, things that they're dreaming about. Wow. It's very Inception. Yeah. yeah. It Sounds exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> but they are interesting examples, I think, of brands tapping into this <clears throat> sort of zeitgeist of people wanting to explore their subconscious minds more so. Um so, yeah, that are actually allowing people to hack their decision-making according to their subconscious desires in real time. Right. So, mm. one, yeah. That's interesting because I wonder what the long-term effect of that would be because we know that when people are sleeping, particularly with the sleep example, mm. when they are sleeping, their brain's doing quite a lot of the filtering and kind of storing mm. of memories and making decisions about which bits stay, which bits go, you know, very much like the Disney film Inside Out, which is incredible. Um, in that, they, they show when she's asleep, there's all this filtering going on and it's a very real thing. And I wonder whether when we start to play with the boundaries of that, what might happen? Mm. You might start mm. to... Uh... People might just have less uh, ability. If, if everyone started doing it, you might just have poorer memory or something because mm. you're not allowing your brain to rest. Who knows? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, so this is interesting because obviously one of the questions I wanted to ask about is, I suppose you might call it the ethical, um, the ethical implications of all of this. Uh, and uh, Shazia, when you, when you work with people, I mean, are they quite willing to have their brains poked around in um, for sort of commercial uh, insights? Is that, I mean, is, is this something which is um, ethically, they're ethically okay with? Yeah, I get asked this quite a lot, actually. So 
I mean, there's a few parts to that, I guess. So the first one is, as a business, um, NeuroInsight does have an ethical policy. So we don't work on uh, gambling, tobacco, or kind of, you know, really dodgy payday loan type situation. Um, the reason for that is because we don't work on anything that when it's used in its intended fashion could cause harm, right? Because what we're doing is we're helping people to optimise advertising, we're helping you know, people to be persuaded to buy something. So we want to make sure that we're on the on the good side of it. Now, I know that um, in any kind of research, particularly now with GDPR, um, you have to get consent and it's the same situation. So we're asking people, we explain to them what's going to happen. We also don't take anything out of their brain or put anything into their brain, just to be clear. Uh, what, we do measure, <laughs> <laughs> what we do is measure the electrical activity that would otherwise normally be, you know, whizzing around as they're watching TV. So consent is a really important thing. I think that you know, the reason that this conversation is so rife at the moment is because of things like the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And that's a very different situation in that, yeah, they they believe that they actually asked for consent, right? Because we all, nobody reads T's and C's. But the, the difficulty is actually when people's data is gathered, it's how it's used, not whether or not it's gathered in the first place. And, I, you know, what they did is they essentially took the data, figured out who they could manipulate and then told them a bunch of lies. That's basically kind mm, of how it went. The persuadables. Exactly. <laughs> it's so terrifying. And I mean, I think as researchers, we have a duty to make a decision of whether or not we want to use our powers for good or for evil, right? Um, and so that's where, in terms of a business, you know, we don't... We don't work with anyone where we know it's on the side of evil. Um, but also, we do get everyone's consent. And people are quite intrigued by it, and they're quite interested. And brands, so outside the consumers being interested, brands are getting to a point where they know that what they've been doing up till now in terms of understanding what people are saying, it's just not enough. It's not cutting it. Um, if it was, we'd have all the answers. Um, there's no blueprint to any of this, right? We're all kind of winging it a little bit. And people are unique and, and different and so being able to quantify what they think and feel in that way it's, it's pretty magical for them so let's talk a little bit about that i'd love to hear about how you work with brands and um how this research has an actual measurable impact on yes. on the work yeah so um there's a few different ways we work with businesses so we about 50% of our work is with brands, so with brand advertisers. And then the other 50% is with media owners. Um, and so on the brand side, I mean, we've done some work where we've uh, we've done some econometric modelling. Um, so we've actually measured uh, how um, much in-market success this sort of data is likely to predict. And the correlation was pretty strong. So we know that actually it does show um, what real ROI would be. The other thing um, that we did was actually last year, it was really exciting, um, Sainsbury's had their 150th anniversary and a documentary was filmed about them called Inside the Supermarket and it was on for six weeks over Christmas and they showcased the neuro research. So it was really interesting because people finally got to see it in action. But within that, there were some really interesting insights. So one of the things that we do with brands quite a lot is to help inform them how to optimise their campaigns. 
And as part of that, you know, looking at the micro moments that you wouldn't normally be able to see, whether you're the best creative agency or the best marketer, you just can't see them. And so we were able to pinpoint those and help them to optimise their campaign in order to drive better sort of response. We've seen that time and time again. We, we did some work with Birds Eye a while back and we saw that um, I think it was like a 130% uh, shift in ROI from year one to year two and it was a 7% increase in market share based on the optimization work we'd done on their campaign. So it's really great for optimization. And then on the other side with the media owners, you know, we've worked on the Channel 4 um, stuff they did on contextual moments. We've done some trade body stuff, you know, some real kind of thought leadership work, looking at the drivers of creative effectiveness with Thinkbox, understanding um, contextual relevance of radio advertising with Radio Centre. So quite big pieces of work that will help to change and shift the way people think about media. And I think that this is one of the most challenging things for everyone right now because Lesbian and Peter Field have talked a lot about short-termism, this rut that we're stuck in with short-termism. And the reason we're stuck in it is because we're in this really complex media landscape where people are being bombarded with information through lots of different channels and platforms. And the ones that are cheaper and easier to reach people are the ones that are short-term platforms. So we've done some work looking at how you can drive creativity through some of those, such as Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. How do you build long-termism whilst using those kind of easier, cheaper, dare I say it, kind of platforms? So, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Stuff. I'd <coughs> like to hear about a bit more about that kind of what what do you do to drive a more long term effectiveness? Oh, I mean this is like one of my favorite things to talk about. Um I mean the key thing for driving long term effectiveness is creativity. I think everybody knows that. But what we find is that um one of the things that we know is that our brains actually hate brands. Okay, we don't like being sold to. We've got kind of a human ad blocker built into our heads. And that's not even a joke. It's kind of a real thing. It's um, when we're little, we don't have this bit in our brain, right? Uh, and then as we get older, this part develops and it helps us to assess risk. And it's also the bit that doesn't like being sold to. So it's a bit that doesn't really like brands. But what our brains love is stories. We kind of make meaning of life through stories. We make sense of the world through stories. And we also love human connection. Um, I was talking about this recently and people always kind of go, yeah, of course we love human connection. I'm like, no, 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 really, think about it hard. Yeah, we like human connection, but we spend all our lives walking around the planet looking for love. It's not just a little thing, it's kind of the big thing. So stories and, and people. And actually, there are ways in driving long-term effectiveness through very nuanced detail around what the brain loves in terms of stories. Now, we've seen um, that it's easy to do that on TV, right? Because you've got 30 seconds, you've got time to build a narrative, you've got lots of time to build brand equity, essentially, through all of the colours and cues and shapes and blah, blah, blah. But with something like Twitter or Facebook, it's a bit harder. You've got a short window of time. It's also very intrusive, having advertising on those platforms. So people aren't actually there for that. But we have seen that, we did some work with Twitter, and we saw that when you put some form of human interaction in the first three seconds of a video, a piece of video on Twitter, you get an uplift of 133% of uh, one of our emotional brain measures. It's an incredibly emotional 
positive sort of response that you get mm. and that that's really powerful and people are always told oh stick your brand straight up front you know because you've only got a small window of time actually that's the worst thing you can do because your brain sees the brand and it shuts off what you want is a very short story arc to be formed and then put your brand in immediately after the rules still apply whether it's 30 seconds or five it's just the time within which you do the stuff brilliant that's really fascinating Another interesting idea that I wanted to bring up was um, the idea of retail spaces, so kind of how um, sub people's subconscious behaviours in retail spaces can impact their buying. So um, this was actually something from uh, that our, re our retail team attended the Shopper Brain Conference. Yeah. Um, and basically they found that adding biophilia or nature to a space... Uh, layering on the usual sensorial touch points can really impact buying behavior positively. Um, and the idea behind this is that, so sensory stimuli trigger reactions in our sort of reptilian, or is that the more instinctual brain and um, our limbic system as well, which is more emotional responses. Mm -hmm. um, and as you mentioned, this controls sort of 18 to 90% of decision making. But now as consumers are gravitating to urban environments and as kind of climate, the climate crisis grows more um, pressing on people's kind of minds, um, feeding nature into that sensory process within retail spaces apparently can increase sales in that environment by up to 25%. So, I, and that's interesting because obviously the narrative that we're being fed about, or just generally speaking, there's a story there about, you know, ecological crisis and, um, you know, being less exposed to nature because we're in these urban sort of cityscapes. Um, so actually weaving in biophilic aspects into a retail environment can have that subconscious impact to increase sales by 25%. I think it's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think this is this, this whole area, this whole idea of, of understanding a, a more uh, psychological context of what's going on when you're interacting with brands is um, a real new frontier, right, in a way. And I'd also add just obviously people, this whole idea around data and people are going to be prepared to part with their data if they can see an immediate benefit to them, if they're kind of, you know, getting something more instantaneously or getting something that's more personalized and bespoke to their actual needs, then they'll, there's an obvious incentive. So, you know, when example that I thought was really interesting was from a travel brand, Tui, and they kind of did a design for you um, concept, I don't think uh, was called Des Destination U. Um, and this was a prototype, but it basically involved people sitting um, in front of various triggers and stimuli and um, imagery videos and being trussed up to various, I guess, EEG and perhaps even more in-depth um, ways of measuring their subconscious responses and then they would have a holiday pieced together accordingly at the end of the process that perhaps was more fine-tuned to their personal preferences than if they'd just gone and selected a holiday by themselves. So people like that idea that, wow, this is really tapping into something that's unbeknownst to me, my ultimate desire. Yeah, <laughs> and that, that actually is incredibly fitting with... Um, 
one one of our metrics. So we measure a part of the brain that's responsible for what we call engagement, very overused word in marketing, but we're referring to personal relevance. So it's a bit of your brain that would light up if you saw something or interacting with something that felt of relevance to you. And that's where I feel like this area of, of personalization, it's been talked about for ages, but it's getting stronger because we're living in quite a fragmented world. And it's quite nice to almost feel like something belongs to you um, because everyone's sort of living in a space where they don't feel necessarily a sense of belonging as much anymore, perhaps. And also that desire to be sort of ultimately kind of like it's an ego thing as well to have, say, say, design why something that's entirely unique to you. Yeah. So I saw something interesting um, where it was a Dutch designer designing furniture by the subconscious mind. Um, And it was uh, basically uh, Marcus Fares, so founder of the online design magazine, Dezine, designed a chair based on MRI scans and sort of, uh, I guess, aspects of his subconscious to come up with this chair. I mean, it looked pretty horrendous in my, probably not not very valid opinion, but um, almost like the pods from Sketch in the bathrooms, but bright orange. Um, But yeah, so it was almost, it was able to determine his taste for different shapes, colors, Well, this is an an interesting point, because I'd like to to ask this. It's like, is, you know, is it a good idea to be (laughs) judging stuff via our subconscious? I mean, is there a... Butchering design. There's a reason why our subconscious is subconscious. And should we be bringing this stuff to the surface? Is it? I mean, that's a great Mm. question, right? You know, it. I don't know. I mean, if you did, you know that the purchase decisions would be a hell of a lot quicker. Because that's, I mean, ultimately, so much of that decision-making process is happening in our subconscious, right? If it was Mm. being designed the way your subconscious wanted it to be, then there would be no question around it. Mm. I mean, but there's got to be a limit on it. Right. I mean, there must be. And that instant buying is an interesting concept as well, because I know um, eBay did something with Saatchi Gallery, Mm. basically an art exhibition where people could walk around and then according to their emotional responses to the artworks, it would auto-fill their um, trolley. (laughs) Wow. So at the end, they were able to see exactly all the art that, you know, and just purchase immediately based on their emotional responses to everything that they'd viewed. Uh, so who knows? One day we might just well, be buying. Yeah, I mean, wow. according to, I mean like, it would be dodgy if you just had a whole basket of things according to your subconscious, isn't that way? <laughs> oh, I'd be properly. Like I we mean, don't have our are, social filters. Yeah. We need our social filters. Well, surely. people are already <laughs> freaking out that their phones might be listening to them. Can you imagine the, nerve, <laughs> the breakdowns that would occur? <laughs> well, it's a good place to end in terms of you know where do you think this is going to go in the future, and for, what's your ambition for? Um, for neuro insight in I that mean, respect, I think that for for us as a business, in terms of research, and for me as somebody who's spent my career in research and is an you know avid lover of the discipline, I think you know we are moving into a place where people are becoming a lot more okay with measuring the subconscious. I think where this is going to head to is it's not just going to be people building communities, online communities or panels. It's going to be us being able to give people a headset, people fitting it themselves at home and us remotely being able to capture data Um, as opposed to now where they come into a facility and it's still very much face-to-face. I think it will be a lot, there'll be higher penetration of this kind of work because 
tapping into the subconscious is the only real way to get the answers. And it will also just be a hell of a lot easier to do and people will be able to self kind of fit the kit and stuff. And we'll get to a point where everything's more wireless, where it's, you know, easy to capture the data from somewhere else because currently the way it works is there are a lot of wires and um, we have proprietary software because the tech that we use is actually owned by NeuroInsight and nobody else in the world uses it. It's just our business. Um, And so... You know, I think that's where we're heading. I think it's going to grow and grow. I don't think it's going away anytime soon. Fantastic. Well, I uh, <clears throat> I guess I look forward with some trepidation to my subconscious guiding my purchasing in the future. Um, I'd like to thank my guests, Shazia Ganai and Kate Johnson, and thank you for listening. I hope you'll join us next time for more Future Thinking from Stylus. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. And if you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available. 